And it has become abundantly clear to me that what has happened to families in the U.S., specifically the fact that more than 20% of kids in the U.S. live with only one parent more than in any other country in the world. This has not been good for kids. And given the underlying class and race disparities in family structure, this has widened inequality and undermined social mobility. What I'm trying to do in this book is move this out of the culture wars, move us beyond um, those, those periods where the, the conversation sort of got stuck and give us a data-driven, evidence-based way to have the conversation. And we tend to talk about everything but this. We really focus on the need to improve schools or strengthen the safety net. Let me just be clear. We spend, as a country, very, very little on these kinds of strengthening, strengthening families programs, precisely because, in my view, strengthening families has not been widely accepted as a policy priority. So only 1% of the Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families, only 1% of their budget is spent on programs aimed at strengthening families. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Melissa Carney. Melissa is a Neil Moskowitz Professor of Economics at the University of Maryland. She is also Director of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Melissa's scholarly research focuses on poverty, inequality, and social policy in the United States. She previously taught at Wellesley College and served as Director of the Hamilton Project at Brookings. She is the author of an important new book, The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. This is my second podcast episode with Melissa. And if you'd like to hear more about her upbringing, early career as an economist, and much else, you can find our first episode linked in the description. Melissa, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on the release of your new book. I've had really appreciated the opportunity to work closely with you at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. I've always been an admirer of yours, but I really admire your willingness and courage to take on the fact that it is a disadvantage for many children to be raised in single parent households and to make the case for marriage in your new book, The Two Parent Privilege. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Me too. Thanks for having me. So, Melissa, let's get started. A lot has happened in the U.S. economy since the last time we spoke here. We'll get to some of that later. But first, let's start with your, with your new book, The Two-Parent Privilege. What motivated you to write this book? Hank, as you know, I have been studying U.S. poverty and inequality and the economics of families for, for many years and it has become abundantly clear to me that what has happened to families in the U.S., specifically the fact that more than 20% of kids in the U.S. live with only one parent, more than in any other country in the world, this has not been good for kids. This has not been good for the millions of parents who are, who are doing this parenting in a household by themselves. And given the underlying class and race disparities in family structure, this has widened inequality and undermined social mobility. 
And at the same time, I've been in dozens of policy-centered conversations around the challenges of inequality and eroding social mobility. And we tend to talk about everything but this. We really focus on the need to improve schools or strengthen the safety net. All things I'm happy to talk about and I think are important, but I just felt like we couldn't keep having this conversation in a productive way, in an honest way, if we didn't tackle head on the divergent family structure and the rise in single parent households. So I finally got to the point where I felt like I needed to pull out all the data and evidence and put it in one place and a book aimed at a non-academic and an audience that was wider than just academics to try and move this conversation forward. For sure. And your basic thesis is that two parent homes are able to provide their children with more advantages than one parent alone. To my ear, this doesn't sound very controversial, but as you describe in your book, it's a claim that can provoke some very strong opinions in uncomfortable debates. Can you help set the scene and explain why this topic is so very fraught? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you that when we think of the, that we can just stipulate, hey, two parents have more combined resources than one parent alone. And it's, you know, so it's not surprising that two parents are typically better able to establish a household with a lot of resources and investment in their kids and, and give their kids more opportunities to thrive that really shouldn't be controversial. But as soon as we bring up matters of the family or marriage, of course, that brings up a lot of sensitivities. Everybody has their own personal link to this topic, either from their own family or the way they're raising kids. And so it immediately you know, gets people um, to feel a little bit sensitive. There's also a really unfortunate history in social science, in policy conversations, dating back to the late 60s that has made this issue of family structure particularly fraught. I, I almost... I hesitate to remind everyone or, or tell people who don't know about that history um, what all the fault lines are, because really what I'm trying to do in this book is move this out of the culture wars, move us beyond um, those those periods where the, the conversation sort of got stuck and give us a data-driven, evidence-based way to have the conversation. But I will highlight two negative reactions that I fully anticipated and I've already been getting a lot of in the first couple of days that the book has been out. The one is bristling from typically highly educated, highly paid single women who you know, are sort of like, how dare you say my kids are disadvantaged? My kids are not disadvantaged. I've given them all these advantages. They're doing great in life. Um, and so you know, me saying that two parent families are generally advantageous Sounds like I'm dismissing all that those single moms have done for their kids. So the first response to that, of course, is yes, there are lots of single moms who provide a lot for their kids and their kids do phenomenally well. And I, of course, I'm not taking anything away from what they've done and achieved. But it's important to realize that those moms are not the modal single mom in America. The, the typical single mom in America is a woman who's not economically uh, very successful on her own. And that makes this challenge all the greater. The second line of pushback that I get, or that people who bring up this topic get, is, you know, by by acknowledging this fact and, and highlighting this issue, we're going to contribute to the 
severe stigmatization of single mothers and their children, such that women are forced back into having no choice but to stay in abusive marriages. And I could not be more explicit that there's nothing I'm saying in this book or in this line of argument that should be misconstrued to say that uh, anyone, women or men, should stay in an abusive marriage for the sake of kids. That being said, I still think it's important for us to recognize that on average and in general, uh, kids from two-parent homes tend to have more resources and opportunities than kids from one-parent home, and and we see that in their in their better outcomes. So now let's talk about marriage. Why is marriage so important for children? You know, if if couples who weren't married were essentially living together in a long-term commitment and co-parenting their children over the child's lifetime in a way that essentially looked like marriage in all but name, then it probably wouldn't matter so much. But it, the truth is, and the practical fact is, that's not what unmarried parenthood looks like. So marriage winds up being exceptionally important in the U.S. because that is the institution that delivers, that is most likely to deliver a stable home life of two parents to kids. And we just simply don't have an alternative. Um, you know, in the U.S., couples who have a child when they're not married, very few of them are together by the time the child is turns age five, let alone 14. And so there's just not a stable alternative. That's not to say there couldn't be in some alternative universe, but that's not what we have. So then what does marriage do? Marriage is most likely to, you know, to sort of bring two parents together in this long-term contract that obviously is not always <laughs> upheld, but is often quite binding. And they pool their resources. And what we see is that kids who live with married parents, they're much less likely to live in poverty. They're much more likely to live in households with higher levels of income. You know, having, again, married parents tends to mean that there are two economic contributors to a household. So a big part of the difference between married households and unmarried households um, is income. Two parents bring in more income than one, um, you know, almost always. So that's one big part of it is income. But it's not just income. We also know that married parents have more combined time to give to their kids and, you know, parental time matters for, for kids, um, for kids development. And we also know that kids, again, this is all from the data. We also know that kids on average who live with married parents tend to have less stress in the home and they tend to have more of what development psychologists would refer to as sort of developmentally appropriate or productive parenting, more nurturing parenting, et cetera. And I think that can be explained by married parents generally having more bandwidth because again, there's two parents doing the very difficult job of maintaining a household and raising kids. And that just leads to less stress. So now let's bring class gaps and income disparity into the conversation. How do marriage rates differ among the various social, economic, and racial groups you've looked at? This is a key part of what has happened in the past 40 years in the U.S. and why it is so consequential and damaging. College-educated adults and parents in particular are still getting married and raising their kids in married parent homes at rates close to what they were doing in 1980. So, 
you know, among that, among kids whose moms have a four-year college degree in 1980, 90% of them were living with married parents. Um, and now that's down to about um, 83 or 84%. This is a pretty big deal because, you know, the college educated class has gotten much, much, much bigger. Many more moms have a college degree than in the past. And yet marriage has not declined very much among that group at all. In contrast, outside the outside the college educated class, and not just among the most disadvantaged or those without a high school degree, among those with a high school degree or some college, there's been a huge decrease in the share of kids to those moms growing up in a married parent home. That's fallen from you know the low eighty percent to just above sixty percent. So only sixty percent of kids among moms who either have a high school degree in some college or no high school degree are now living in married parent homes. So what are the main reasons people have stopped getting married? And are these causes unique to the United States? Are, are you looking at similar trends in, in other countries around the world? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, um, this is a, a big question. My summary read of the, of the evidence on all this is that the explanation is, is both economic and social. Okay, so let's just, you know, we let's remind ourselves, we all know in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of social and cultural changes. Um, there was, you know, changes in the way people thought about marriage and gender roles in relationships. And we saw in the 60s and 70s a move away from marriage among that was essentially proportionate throughout the education distribution. But then there was a really striking divergence. In the 80s and 90s, the decline in marriage stalled out among college-educated adults. They kept getting married um, you know, at sort of the same rate. The decline stalled out. But below the college-educated class, things started, things continued to decline. And I think the explanation is that we have a new, we had a new social paradigm where marriage was seen as less important. Having kids within inside a marriage was seen as less critical. And at the same time, we had all these economic shocks that really eroded the standing of non-college educated men. So in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, non-college educated men saw their employment rates fall, their earnings, um, especially relative to, to women, fall. And, you know, <laughs> the way I think about this as an economist, Hank, is the economic value proposition of marriage for these couples outside the college-educated class was eroded by these shocks. So if you have men now who are less likely to be working, who are less likely to bring in stable income, at the same time, the women are more likely to be working and bringing in higher levels of income in, them, in themselves, the, you know, sort of the attractiveness of marriage as an institution was decreased for both men and women in that class. And so we got into this cycle where I think the arrows run both ways between economic changes and social changes. And then the social changes perpetuate and they affect the way people responded to these economic changes. And so that's how I think we got into this situation where non-marriage and the debundling of marriage from having and raising kids has become fairly widespread outside the college educated class. Yes, and, and there's been a lot of discussion in recent years 
about why boys in particular are struggling in modern society. And as you note in your book, this is having a really profound impact on the family. Talk about some of the specific challenges for boys and for young men and what this has meant for marriage trends. Now you've been clear what it's meant for marriage trends, but but but, but talk about what is making it so difficult for, for boys and young men today. I think this is a, a really big part of why it is so imperative that we break this cycle. You know, we see um, at the same time as, um, you know, the, with the boys, the gender gap now in a lot of educational outcomes really favors girls. So girls are less likely to get in trouble in school. They're more likely to graduate high school. They're more likely to go to college and graduate college. Girls in a number of dimensions are just doing better than boys. And a lot of people have noted the correspondence of this trend with the rise in the number of boys and the share of boys in America growing up without dads in their home. And it turns out that there looks like, it seems to be that there's some causal link there. So there have been a few really important studies in recent years by teams of economists that have shown that the gender gap favoring girls is higher among kids growing up in single parent versus two parent households, meaning that you know boys are always more likely to get in trouble in school or in trouble with the law. Not always, and an average boys are more likely to get in trouble um, than girls in school or with the law. They're more likely to get suspended, but there there's an excess um, in in that likelihood among boys who are living in homes without dads. Some really interesting research by the scholars, uh, Marianne Bertrand and Jessica Pond, try and get in, you know, into the mechanisms of what seems to be driving that. And what they find is that in households where, you know, that are headed by single moms without a dad present, it is true that boys receive relatively less time with their parent, their mom. They receive, they're more likely to receive harsh or less nurturing parenting. But really interestingly, boys seem to be particularly responsive to that as compared to girls, meaning the lack of parental, you know, positive parental inputs seems to really um, leave boys more likely to act out, to get in trouble, and to do things that sort of derail and impede their educational progress in ways that are quite controversial. Also, at an aggregate level, um, work by Raj Chetty and his colleagues using the millions of tax records on kids, looking at the neighborhoods and the households that kids grow up in, how that translates into their outcomes as adults. What they see is beyond just the influence, the positive influence of having two parents in the household, the gap in outcomes and incomes for black and white boys is smaller for Black, you know, from neighborhoods where there were more black dads present. So let, let me let me try and explain this a little bit. Basically, what they find is the mobility, the upward mobility of black boys from a neighborhood is um, it's greater if there are not if not just if the boys themselves grow up with dads in the house, but if there are more black dads in the neighborhoods. And this is really quite striking because this basically says that in these neighborhoods where there's not dads around, and in particular where Black boys are growing up without Black dads around, those boys are really at a disadvantage. 
And so we both see this at a very micro household family level and also at a neighborhood level that dads are really helpful to boys. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, again, getting back to things that did we really need all this research to show us this? We might have thought that dads were helpful to boys. Now we have a lot of research showing us that. And so it should be really not controversial to say. I don't think we need the research. Even when I grew up in a home in, a, in an area, middle-class area where uh, it was w w with largely white families and with dads, you know, boys were less mature, right? In school. So they didn't do as well in school early on as, as, as the girls did. They were more apt to get in trouble, et cetera. They matured later, but they did mature later and there were plenty of role models there for them. And, and so it's, uh, again, shouldn't be shocking. You know, let me just like link this back to the conversation we were just having about marriage. This is why this is a really damaging cycle, because, you know, we have all these women who are raising kids on their own, in part because either they decide the men they've had kids with are not reliable or attractive as marriage partners or dads in the household or the dads that decide themselves they don't have the inclination or wherewithal or economic means to commit to taking care of a family. And then you've got millions of boys growing up without dads in their neighborhoods and in their homes. And so they're experiencing a lack of role models about what does it mean to be a good partner or good father. And so this cycle, if we don't break this, this is just going to perpetuate um, with you know boys struggling and then men not being reliable as, as resident dads or partners and, and advantage and disadvantage is going to perpetuate across generations. So how do we break it? Let, let's talk about solutions. Uh, have you seen programs that are helping people learn how to be married and better parents? What makes programs effective or not? So this is a really hard one, Hank, and I will be the first to admit my book is much uh, more convincing on the fact that we have a problem than on what to do about it. But I will say a couple of things. So one, just at a big structural level, I do think that the struggles that non-college educated men have had in the labor market where they've sort of, you know, fallen away from employment and well-paying jobs and then all of the associated challenges that come with that, the personal struggles that come from being out of work, um, from not being stably employed, you know, all of the things we talk about, about expanding economic opportunity, increasing skills, increasing access to well-paying jobs, all of that takes on heightened urgency when we acknowledge the terrible spillovers that that has had to families and how this is you know, perpetuating inequality and disadvantage across generations. So I think, again, it's it's less direct, but it gets more to the root. One of the root causes of the problems is we really just need to double down on all of our efforts to improve um, the economic position of, of non-college educated men in particular in America. I also think, again, it's sort of a, a bigger societal level, you know, I, we need to reestablish a social norm of having and raising kids inside two parent households and the sort of normalization of having kids and raising kids with only one parent is contributing to why this is so widespread. And so, you know, role models matter, messaging from local leaders and, and from national leaders matter. And so we do need to reestablish that norm. Um, but at a more, you know, 
to your question about the kinds of programs that work, let me just be clear. We spend as a country very, very little on these kinds of strengthening strengthening families programs precisely because, in my view, strengthening families has not been widely accepted as a policy priority. So only 1% of the Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families, only 1% of their budget is spent on programs aimed at strengthening families. They spend way more on Head Start, on, um, you know, on foster care. Very, very little goes to these kinds of programs. So, you know, why is that? Here's my read. Others might disagree. But in, you know, in the 80s, the Bush, Bush administration experimented with healthy marriage initiatives. Let's try and convince low-income folks to get married. And these programs were not successful at getting more people to get married. And so then essentially people gave up on the idea, right? It was like social scientists sort of laughed at it. It was like, well, this was a silly idea. And we sort of moved away from it. Now, some some version of those programs continue. It's not healthy marriage as much as strengthening families, responsible fatherhood. But I just think we gave up on those efforts too soon, right? We spend a lot of effort and both policy effort and funding and research effort trying to figure out how to improve schools, how to get more kids through college. We need to be experimenting more and learning more about what works to help struggling, economically vulnerable couples create strong, sustained families and relationships, both for themselves and for their kids. We need to be doing more in fatherhood programs. There are some programs that show, you know, some of these responsible fatherhood programs. Again, you know, I haven't really seen evidence that any of these have large effects on the rate at which couples stay together in two-parent arrangements or households. But you do see some promise of, um, you know, more positive engagement of fathers with their kids, lower levels of stress among the moms after they go through these programs. The other thing I'll say that's encouraging on this, a lot of these programs serve low-income couples, unmarried parents, that voluntarily attend these programs because they want to stay together. They want to make their relationships work. They want to be married. They want to co-parent. And when you read the qualitative interviews with them, a lot of them say, like, you know, I didn't grow up in a two-parent home. I'm not surrounded by married people. Marriage is hard. And there, there are a lot of very, you know, real practical barriers. And I just think we should be spending a lot more resources helping these families work together on their relationships and being strong parents together for their kids. Your research is very important because I, I think that is the farthest thing from policymakers' minds right now as to how can the government play a role in, in uh, through programs to encourage marriage. So I'd like to to get to a, a topic that that economists talk about more freely, which is the trends we're seeing in uh, childbearing. You know, with with, uh, with marriage declining. I assume that's impacting childbearing, and what what does that trend mean for the U.S. economy? Sure. Yeah, U.S. births are way down. Um, our, you know, one one clear measure of this is demographers will tell you, on average, a woman in her childbearing years needs to have two point one kids for the population to sort of naturally uh, reproduce itself, and we're down to below one point seven kids per woman in the U.S. You know, my, 
my read of what's been going on with birth rates in the US, in other high income countries, the reasons behind this, my read of that is that we there's no reason to expect this is going to turn around anytime soon. We see that women in other high income countries, uh, their fertility rates fell below two years before in the US. In some sense, US fertility was quite exceptional for a long time, staying above two. Of course, in some Asian countries, you know, they're they're really far below replacement rate. In South Korea, I think the latest I saw was, you know, it's below point, it's like point eight. Um so I don't think birth rates are going to turn around. Uh, you know, one of the sort of mechanical drivers is the large increase in the share of women in childbearing age who aren't married, um, because married women, despite all everything I've been saying about, you know, how many kids are now born to 40% of US kids are now born to unmarried mothers. Um, married mothers do, married women do have more kids than, or more likely to have kids than unmarried women. And so that trend is sort of one of the drivers, but it really, again, I've looked at so many potential explanations for this and in broad strokes, what do I see? I think people are just shifting their shift. They've shifted their priorities, how, how young adults, adults today want to spend their adult time and money is it's more likely to be on things other than having kids or multiple kids. It, and so this is why we see sort of parenting, which has become a more intense, time intensive activity too over the past 20, 30, 40 years. Parenting comes more in clash and, you know, with desire to pursue careers, have leisure time, et cetera. And so this is why I just don't think this is going to turn around. I, I still remember, Melissa, a conversation I had with my mom when we, we we had two kids, both younger than three. And I said, mom, why didn't you tell me it was going to be like, <laughs> why didn't you warn me? And she said, I think if I had, you wouldn't have had kids, you know, <laughs> and this is going to be a, a lot of work, but it's going to be a great blessing. And you're going to be very glad you did it. And she's right. Was right. You know, yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, it, it, it is time consuming. So, Melissa, now let's get to a few other issues facing the U.S. economy. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about the near-term impact of what we're seeing, and there's some good news in recent weeks showing a steady slowdown in inflation and a fresh increase in job seekers. But, you know, you, you and I and, and, and others at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, we spent a lot of time looking at longer-term structural issues like rising debt, higher interest rates, growing entitlement spending. How big do you see, think these risks are? And uh, what are the solutions? I am really worried about the debt projections and with interest rates going up, how much more our spending um, is going to be tilted towards spending on, on the deficit and the debt. Um, you know, we sort of set ourselves up for this. We have these really large entitlement programs um, all focused on the elderly in this country. Uh, we have a rising share of federal outlays will be devoted to interest payments. This is not good for the resilience of our federal government and our economy and our ability to respond to longer term needs. And related to everything else we've been talking about, the, you know, if, if 
basically we're using all of our, if the more we use such a large share of our federal outlays and all the money that we're raising in tax revenues to entitlement spending on the elderly and on interest payments on the debt, Hank, that leaves us with very little for long-term investments in, in kids who are a future workforce, in infrastructure, in research and development, in all of the things that will boost productivity and income per capita going forward. And so I absolutely think it's imperative that we get our fiscal situation in order in the U.S. Um, you know, we're going to have to raise more money. There's plenty of ways of raising more tax revenue in progressive ways. We're going to have to do that, but that's going to take some forward-looking bipartisanship on the part of Congress, which is no easy feat these days. And I, you know, related actually to the declining birth rate, we have an aging population, we have declining birth rates, immigration policy in this country is a mess. And so our working age population is going to be shrinking in the near future at the same time that productivity per work hour hasn't been growing. These are not conditions that set us up to be a very vibrant economy. And so I think we, you know, we need to get our spending in order so that we can spend on things that boost our productivity. We need to deal with the demographic challenges that are leaving us with a, will be leaving us with a smaller workforce. Of course, again, related to some of the earlier challenges we were talking about, we have nearly 50% of prime age men not in the workforce. So that contributes to all of these challenges. Um, And so, you know, not, not to be pessimistic, obviously the country has a lot of great things going for us, but we need a lot of dedicated efforts to really boost our resiliency and our dynamism. Very well said. You know, we're a rich country, so there's a lot of things we can do. We want to address these problems early on. But getting back to the deficit, you know, we've had the deficit, you know, increase double essentially from one trillion to two trillion in one year. Now, part of that, a lot of that's because of inflation, what this done to entitlements, what it's done to tax receipts, a whole lot of things. But it's alarming. And to me, we will, if we don't do something about it, we'll hit the wall. And when we hit the wall and when, we're, when, the, when the Fed is the primary or the only major buyer of U.S. Treasuries and we're trying to sell them when interest rates are going up, it's going to be, it's going to be all she wrote. So we need, we need to act there. There's, as I said, and as you said, there's plenty of things we can do to raise revenue. There's plenty of things we can do to deal with some of these entitlement programs, still making them means testing, using ways to still make them help the most needy. But we we need to act soon. But I want to get now to something that really caught my attention. Uh, You gave a paper at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group meeting we had in July about the importance of investing in Americans, America's youth. And I'd like you to make the case for our listeners here because because to me, this is huge. And every organization, if they want to perpetuate themselves, invest in younger, younger people, younger employees. Every family wants their children to, to live as well or better than they did. But what are we doing as a country? Talk to us a bit about that, Melissa. This relates 
relates to what we were just saying about how much of our federal spending goes to the elderly. We have a very you know, strong social contract with the elderly in this country. We will take care of people in their retirement. We will, we will, you know, give them social security benefits to make sure they don't live in poverty. We will give them health care. We have no such contract with kids to take care of kids. And what does that mean? Well, you know, as a normative matter, I'd like us to be a society that wanted that committed to taking care of our kids. But as an economist, I look at this and I realize this is a massive failure to invest in our future. So we have millions of kids who are not reaching their human capital potential, who are not developing into, you know, the the adults that they have the potential to be because we don't invest in them as kids. And so what do we know? We know that the federal government spends five times more per capita on the elderly than kids. The federal government in our country spends less than $6,000 per kid on an annual basis. At the same time, we have mounts of evidence showing that targeted investments in kids from low-income backgrounds in particular, programs that you know are targeted at, at their health care, at nutrition, at education, they yield positive social returns. What does that mean? That means that kids who are low income and get access to expanded health care, to expanded you know, support for food, for healthy food, um, to some income support to their family, to early childhood education, they do better in school. They are less likely to commit crime as juveniles and young adults. They are more likely to earn higher wages as adults, and they're less likely to rely on government programs. And so what economists have done is shown is like, done, you know, sort of lifetime benefit cost ratios that show that these investment spending from the federal government and kids, targeted spending, yields social returns well in excess of one, and often in what, you know, looks like infinity, because why? Because the net cost to the government over the long term is, is, is negative because the government makes the money back because these people become more positive contributors, pay higher taxes. And so it is it is somewhat, you know, it's insane when you look and you see how tilted our spending is toward the elderly, which is about taking care of them. And I think we should do that. But it's tilted away from spending on young kids where and not just under age five, okay? So they're spending, you know, there's programs on kids under age 18 that has have been documented have really large positive social returns. We're just not putting money there, right? So from an investment perspective, we're leaving, we're leaving returns, um, we're leaving returns on the table and not investing in our in, in our future workforce and in our future generation. Yeah, every great organization, every great country has got to invest in its future. And to me, one of the perverse aspects of our political system is it responds to political giving. And you take a look at the elderly and how they're organized. And, uh, you know, they and the system responds to them and is not looking at the the needs of, 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 of our kids. So let's go from there and, and end with, with a question about what advice you have for young people. What guidance do you give your students who are trying to navigate some of the difficult challenges in today's increasingly complex and volatile world? You know what, Hank, this, um, 
this might almost feel a little bit backwards of the kind of advice we're supposed to give young people these days. But over the past five to 10 years, what I've really seen with the college students that I encounter, I mean, they're, they're amazing and they're talented and they're hardworking, but they're also, um, they're phenomenally stressed out. <laughs> and so I find myself most frequently giving advice to young people of you don't have to have it all figured out by the time you're 22. And you also, you don't really have to go save the planet. You don't have to, you know, undo all of the social ills this year. I I think sometimes the advice we give young people about finding their passion and making a difference in the world just leads to really high levels of stress. When I think about how that would have felt if I constantly got that message at age 20, I'm not sure I would have been able to sort of slowly meander and find what I was good at, what I felt like I enjoyed doing, how I could sort of make the most of what talents I had. And so I, I guess my advice to young people is to is to be kind with themselves, to give themselves some time to figure out how they want to structure their life, what kind of career they want to pursue, um, to, to have a little faith that'll work out, to be kind to themselves and others and 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 really just find the joy around them. That's good advice because I think you are in many ways like me early on. You know, when I was 20 or 22, I had no idea what I wanted to do, right? I took it I took it one step at a time. There was a time I thought I wanted to be an English professor. You know, I would have, yeah. uh, and I, I don't think I would have flourished as an academic. And right, I, I, I ended up going into investment banking, but when I graduated from college, I didn't know what an investment banker was, right? right? So uh, again, I, I think telling people to, to not stress out and also, you know, there there is a job for them. There is a right job for them, and they will find it. And uh, and uh, and then when they do something, they they need to be focused on doing a good job and learning as much as they can. So, Melissa, this has been terrific. You've given us a lot to think about, and you are a great example of how enlightened academic research, economic research can help us, you know, understand better some of the real problems and issues that, uh, that people are facing and, and, and help uh, set, think about and set economic policy, which will make a big difference in people's life. So, I appreciate that. How you're doing. <laughs> Thanks, Hank. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.